Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Last time on Voices for Justice, we discussed the day that my and my father's home was raided by the police and the insane items found in our home, including a lot of weapons and a plan to use them in order to get revenge for Alyssa's death. In this episode, we are going to dive into what we know about this manifesto written by my father and his plan to attack the Union, as well as the events that occurred directly after he went to prison. What a lot of people don't know about this story is that the police actually found more than one version of this manifesto of varying lengths. But to keep things simple, I'm going to reference it all as the manifesto. The longest version of this manifesto is 97 pages, and it's titled The Story of a Madman Martyr, Lost in an Obsession for Justice and Closure. And I remember him writing it. He would spend hours in his home office writing away but he told me it was his life story. He would say it was all the stories I heard growing up about him being poor in West Phoenix, moving a lot, his parents and his siblings screwing him over, his time as a police officer, and a lot about the shooting of his brother's wife. And pretty much every other story we've explored in his writings and transcripts all the way up until 2008 when he was arrested. But beyond these sad stories about his life is another story weaved into most of the timeline. And that is the story of his lifelong battle with the electrical union, and specifically related to Alyssa's case, how two assassins from that union killed Alyssa in 2003. The story goes that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers sent two assassins to kidnap and kill Alyssa, Charles Parsons and Gary Morris. And in turn, my father then had to kill these two assassins. The first was apparently Charles Parsons. My father claims that Charles was following him, so he confronted him. Charles pulled a gun, but of course my father is faster at the draw and shoots Charles to death. But before Charles dies, he admits to my father that the Union sent him and that he did in fact help kill Alyssa. The story about Gary Morris is a little more confusing. They are in the desert together and my father begins yelling at him, to which Gary immediately cracks and admits that he is from the Union and that he did in fact help kidnap and kill Alyssa and buried her in Desert Center, California. After the statement, my father says that he shoots and kills Gary Morris. The name Gary Morris might ring a bell for you, and that's because in the last episode, we discussed some of the strange items found in our home during the raid. And one of those items was a social security card with the name Gary Wayne Morris on it. When the police looked into the story about the assassins, they discovered that both Gary and Charles were real people. But Gary Wayne Morris was actually Gary L. Morissette, who died in Illinois in 1987 at the age of 61. And Charles Wayne Parsons died in Texas in 1993 at the age of 38. For privacy purposes and out of respect for their families, I won't discuss how they died, but I can tell you it was not at the hands of my father. Obviously, the police didn't put much weight into this story, as both men died years, if not decades, before Alyssa went missing. 
But despite this large discrepancy, according to my father, these assassins from the Union killing Alyssa is why he planned an act of domestic terrorism against the Union. The written plan authored by my father states that he had to, quote, kill at least a dozen Union members. And he further outlines the following steps for committing this act. 1. Throw a firecracker over the wall. 2. Prep van for fire. 3. Set lighter fluid papers. 4. Drive a Union fence. 5. Set smoke bombs. 6. Light fire. 7. Drive through the fence. 8. Shoot truck gas tank. 9. Shoot 100 rounds through the door at anyone who was moving. 10. Walk the truck. Now, he says truck in these writings. However, we know that he had an old van rigged as an explosive device filled with propane tanks, a detonator, and equipped with a brick next to the gas pedal. So when he says truck, I think it's safe to assume that he would be using the van in those instances. In fact, in other parts of the manifesto, he does refer to it as the van. One police report speaking to the timing of the event states, Mike Turney had provided the date of October 20th, 2008, for when he would commit his murders. The manifesto created by Mike in the handwritten notes indicated that he would intend to drive his van slash mobile bomb into the Union Hall. Mike would not be in the van at that time, but would rather remain outside the hall firing a rifle at any survivors or persons attempting to flee. The document which detailed the attack include handwritten notes where Mike estimated times for his retreat. The October attack did not occur. It is unknown why Mike Turney postponed the attack. In addition, the wheel wells of the van were packed with chlorine sticks, which according to police statements, were possibly there to release chlorine gas upon the van exploding. The police believe that my father was only days away from committing this act, as the next union meeting was on December 15th, only four days after the search warrants were executed on our home. The police also found sealed and addressed envelopes to various media outlets, each with one thumb drive containing his manifesto and plan. Inside each package was also the following letter. To the reader, inside this envelope you will find my last writings that may give you some insight as to how I got to this point in my life that death, vengeance, and mass murder was all I had left for the murder of my daughter, Alyssa Turney. And, in another part of the manifesto, my father writes directly to me. That portion reads, To my beloved Sarah, Alyssa is dead, and I am partially to blame for being an outspoken constitutionalist activist in the wrong place at the wrong time, among people with no such virtue in a society that hates the messenger of the truth. I have decided to end the lives of the people that I believe contributed to her death including my own. Please do not become an activist. As this nation's people hold their hate for truth second only to the person who brought them the message, I have tried to indoctrinate you that a four-year college degree must be foremost and the platform you will launch the remainder of your life from now. It will open the door where doors would be closed without it so you can have better choices in life. 
A formal education is the only form of freedom and independence for less affluent citizens in a very biased and prejudiced society like America. I love you so much. It has been you and you alone why I have waited so long to engage my final actions. Alas, there is no good time to do evil as a means to an end. There is no peaceful means to an end, as the judicial system has failed to provide a level playing field so our family can have a peaceful closure. It is as much my fault as it is the system. It is my sole responsibility to do what must be done. I hope one day you see it as a necessary sacrifice for the personal needs of our family who loved Alyssa. Alyssa did not willingly abandon you any more than your mother did. Though you may miss me, I hope my efforts to have you hate me or dislike me lessen your pain, as this was the hardest of all deeds I had to accomplish. It was not done because I no longer loved you, but because I love you so much that you deserve a quick and final separation from me. This too shall pass, and the storm clouds will clear, for you to enjoy a positive, clean, refreshing morning without the burden of a sick parent and lost loved ones. My death will end all of that, as all debts are paid with death. When my father went to prison, I was able to finish my current semester in college, as I really only had a few classes and finals left. Unfortunately, but also still so mortifying, my professors had seen what happened on the news. They expressed their condolences, and I imagine, probably gave me a little bit of leeway. However, I ended up dropping my next semester of classes to take some time to piece my life back together. During this time, I broke again, and I went into the deepest depression I have ever experienced. In my mind, everything I had left in the world was just ripped away from me. First my mother, then Alyssa, and now my father. They were all gone. But I also knew I had to be strong for him. In my mind, what he was going through was so much worse than what I was going through. All I could think about was how lonely and scared he must have been in prison. So I quickly got to work on maintaining our home and helping my father get out of prison as soon as possible. Almost immediately, he drew up papers for me to get legal power of attorney over all of his affairs, essentially allowing me to act on his behalf while he was incarcerated. And overnight, I became a fully functioning, independent adult. I took over our mortgage and all of the bills, as well as essentially becoming a full-time legal secretary for my father. I would type up motions and file them with the court, make him copies, retained organized folders of different motions and lawsuits, as well as evidence of his mistreatment in prison for future lawsuits. I did everything I could to help him get better medical treatment in prison while also trying to get him out. He even addressed his letters to me as Sarah Turney, legal secretary, and instructed me to address my correspondence to him containing any legal issues which was essentially all of our communication, as legal mail. His reasoning being that the prison was not supposed to pre-screen any legal mail. In doing my research for this podcast, I dug out my letters from him, and I have more than I can count, so I will be referencing them as we continue to move through the timeline. But he began writing me immediately after he was incarcerated. 
After going to the 4th Avenue Jail in Phoenix, he was transferred to a state prison in Florence, Arizona, about two hours outside of Phoenix. The first letter I found from him is from December 20th, 2008, only nine days after he was arrested. And that letter reads, Dear Sarah and family, I love you all. Thank you for the support. It has been so long since I wrote a letter by hand. Please excuse my handwriting and spelling. It sounds like things are doing well at home. Make sure you monitor all mail for any notices from insurance or the loan company. I need you to make sure that during any interview that neither you nor anyone mention my past history in law enforcement, as I am in general population. Many of the people here with me are interested in when you will be doing your interview with Channel 15 as they want to watch it. We have basic cable like at home and are permitted to watch two movies a day. This is much better than the first seven days. There are about 50 people in my area, mostly Mexican. Some of their stories are so sad. Some are getting sentenced to three and four years for crossing the border without any other crimes. I am very happy that you are continuing school. Please remember that the Phoenix Police Department believe they are doing their job. As I come down from my medication, my mind is clearing up. I believe I have a good chance of challenging the search warrant because we were providing all that they had asked for, and the law mandates that any government action be a normal practice or custom. The Phoenix Police Department's actions to search for non-existing evidence based on a blanket search warrant versus probable cause is very questionable. In your interview, you might want to let the media know how ill I was physically and mentally and how I was under the care of four doctors when the Phoenix police created the story about the convicted murderer and that they served the search warrant after I sent a certified letter notifying them of my intent to sue them. It might help find a constitutional lawyer that will help us pro bono. Love, Dad. And like I mentioned, by December 29th, 2008, I had full power of attorney, as my father mentions in this next letter, along with some advice about how I should be bracing myself for the future. That letter reads, Dear Sarah, I got the power of attorney notarized today. Finally. Read all of the document. It pretty much gives you the power over all of my affairs. Please do not share this part of my letter, but I believe that one or more of your brothers may have been involved in all of this. I think it would be a good book if you wrote about all the adversity in your life. It will also help you get over it and make you stronger. Not that you need to be any stronger or be tested anymore. But you need to understand that all of this is just the beginning and will take a long time to come to some kind of end. The worst part will be when the Phoenix Police and National Center for Missing and Exploited Children try to prosecute me for Alyssa's disappearance. A trial will eventually exonerate me, but will take a long time. You must stay on course for your life. You can always come back to my problems. I need to get this letter off to you so you can get the power of attorney. Don't lose it. Love, Dad. By January, he was already getting into prison fights. And in my opinion, kind of bragging about it. One letter from January 29th, 2009, reads... I had a minor problem. It seems one of the Mexicans decided my apology wasn't good enough. So we had a minor incident that was rumored to be a big event. He went down with one punch to his soft tummy. I guess I moved up in the rankings. 
This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. And at this time, we were already talking to ABC 2020 about doing a show to feature Alyssa. From the context of this next letter, it seems as if I wrote him to ask if I should participate in the show, to which he writes, I think it best to talk to 2020's producer about Alyssa. You were the closest to Alyssa, but I dealt mostly with her day-to-day challenges to teach her how to deal with her learning disability and gullibility or susceptibility to being easily influenced in a bad way. I tried both numbers, only getting her voicemail. I'll try again. I will only agree to give her an interview if she agrees to give you a copy of the taped interview, so remind her should she forget. And in the same letter, he revises his statement, saying, At 11.20 a.m., I spoke with the producer for about 30 minutes. She asked to call her back at her office phone. We focused on Alyssa. She agreed to give you a copy of the conversation, so hold her to it. Love, Dad. On June 29th, 2009, my father, myself, and two of my brothers all agreed to go on the show that would eventually air later in 2009. But I never actually got a copy of the taped interview. However, Detective Summershoe sent me the 69-page transcript over email with a note saying, quote, A couple of caveats. First, it's quite lengthy. And two, 
your father says some things you might find disturbing. But before I dive deep into that, I wanted to play what was actually aired on ABC 2020 and what my father had to say about Alyssa, his charges, the bombs, and the assassin story. He refused to interview with police, refused to take a lie detector test. But Mike Turney agreed to talk to us. He sat down to answer some of the tough questions he's facing. I'm John Quinones. We went to visit him at a federal prison near Phoenix, where he's being held for those weapons and explosives charges. He's not charged with anything related to Alyssa's disappearance. So they raid your house mm-hmm. with a search warrant, mm-hmm. and they find some pretty disturbing things. They had not amazing. So what were you planning to do? I wanted the attention brought to Alyssa because in my mind, mm-hmm. I believe anything adverse happened to Alyssa, it was done by a union. Police say you were going to bomb the local union hall. What bombs? Because these, these things explosives? weren't in there. They were not in that house. Well, tell me then, what did you have in your house? Firecrackers, a few things to, to make it some noise, uh, start a fire. So when I blew my head off, at least it would make some kind of noise. Mike says the bombs were not his, that they were planted in his home by police. But he does take credit for that manifesto. In one of your writings, you actually said, and I quote here, that you had to kill at least a dozen union members. I don't remember. Were you going to take innocent lives? Nope. They find hours and hours, countless hours of audio tapes and videotapes. Why did you record so much? Why do I record so much? The videos are recorded because I love my family. But weren't these surveillance cameras in the house? Those are for my protection of my house. Does that seem unusual? For security. Yeah, most of it's for security. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I want to spy on everybody? Why didn't you hang on to those things that could have proven that you're not to blame? The surveillance video from the day Alyssa disappeared. The audio recording of that phone call you There was nothing on the tape. They were told that. They also had those other tapes of bondage and your sexual activities. Consensual sex with a woman. But the sexual stuff was rather kinky. So? What does that mean? I'm guilty of killing my daughter because I had kinky sex with some woman? That's what that means. Some of Alyssa's friends say that she came to them in tears. That she said that one day she woke up and you were on top of her, gagging her. Another time she woke up, she was handcuffed to the bed. Are those things true? No, absolutely not. Repulsive. Never gagged her. Never gagged never her. Never was on top of never, her. Never. Never once. Never handcuffed her. Never. Absolutely not. Did you ever do anything sexual with your stepdaughter? No. Why would I do that? They have no proof whatsoever, anything other than rumors, innuendos, and lies. If they have no proof, that doesn't mean you, you, you didn't do it. Well, it, again, there's only two people that can confirm whether I did or didn't. One is me, and the other is Alyssa. Alyssa's not here, and I'm sitting here. And all I can say, till hell freezes over, I didn't do a damn thing to my daughter. Did you kill her? No. Absolutely not. If detectives want to come interview here in prison, they can do that. Do you agree to that? They sure can. I have never once denied to talk to these police officers. Since our visit with Mike Turney, detectives spoke with him by phone and requested a police interview. They say he declined. But they continue to believe that this case can be solved. Let's stop here and take a look at the report of that phone conversation initiated by Detective Anderson asking my father to be interviewed. It reads, The call began with Mike Turney identifying himself and acknowledging that he remembered me very distinctly. He immediately added, We can't have this meeting unless it's in public. 
unless it's on like 2020, or we can do it in a courtroom under deposition. Mike would maintain his demand that media be present for any interview to take place. As a former law enforcement officer, he would be aware of the impracticality of his demand in that media cannot be used as an agent of law enforcement. The demand that members of the media be present for a prison interview is unrealistic and is used in this case as an outright refusal. I tried to lessen Mike's concerns by explaining that I only wanted to speak to him about Alyssa and not about his current bomb charges. Mike replied, quote, Well, I'm not going to talk to you again because I have read your creative writing. You lie. Mike continued throughout the conversation referring to this detective as a liar. He would continue the insults throughout the conversation and even implied criminal behavior on my part. I reminded Mike that prior to his arrest, I had personally asked him to come down to the police facility for an interview on at least two occasions. The purpose of the interview at the police facility is to provide a recorded statement. The police facilities are audio taped and recorded on digital video. Mike had repeatedly refused to be interviewed in this formal setting when contacted in the past. Mike now denied that he had ever refused the process in the past. He said that no such conversations took place between he and I. He then called me a liar. Mike added to his response saying, quote, You have a tape recording of me saying that I was going to do that, and you lied and said that I didn't, and said I wasn't going to meet with you. That is the reason we are not going to have another interview unless it's on TV. Mike was asked bluntly if he was willing to sit down and be interviewed. He replied, quote, Yes, I will sit down with you and do an interview on camera as long as I get a copy of it, because you lie. Mike appeared to be trying to provoke a confrontation at this point. I explained to him that I do not have the ability to force or command ABC to tape his interview. Mike responded by saying that the police had the media show up all night long during the day of the search warrant. He implied that media attention was orchestrated by police. The conversation continued with Mike repeatedly talking over me and repeatedly calling me a liar. He accused me of trickery and scheming and added that I was a dirty cop. Mike then accused this detective of planting incriminating evidence inside his home during the service of the search warrant. Mike began to question me, asking, quote, where did you get the pipe bombs? This was a dramatic change and that Mike was now denying the possession of the explosives. Oddly, Mike had already admitted to having the bombs and plotting to murder union members in a planned murder-slash-suicide. Now Mike was saying, quote, I'm ex-military, buddy. Only morons would use pipe bombs and gang members. Mike denied being a gang member. Mike was asked if he would consent to a polygraph. He refused and then argued that they were useless in court. I agreed that the polygraph is not admissible as evidence, but still a strong investigative tool. Mike then agreed to take the polygraph, but only if I took a polygraph before him, using questions that he wanted to ask. Mike was again setting up unlikely conditions in an effort to appear cooperative. In an effort to address the accusations about planting the evidence, I began speaking to Mike about his manifesto. The murder plot against the union was attributed to Mike having determined that Alyssa was murdered. Mike refused to answer any questions and ended the interview. But like Summershoe had warned me, the 69-page transcript of the ABC 2020 interview contains many disturbing statements made by my father that were not aired on television. Reading all of them could be an episode in itself. So I isolated a part of the interview that I found to be particularly interesting and relevant to this episode. It includes some of what you heard before, but without the editing. 
The transcript reads, My intent was to commit suicide and bring this case of Alyssa to the light. I know. We'll get to that. As far as their accusations are concerned, no, I don't have weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, and I wasn't involved in 9-11. Or the assassination of JFK, Martin Luther King, or Bobby Kennedy. Do you think they're capable of accusing you of all that? If you've ever seen some of the investigations of the Phoenix PD, yeah, you can put a guy on death row by planting evidence on him, uh, spent 10 years in death row, and finally gets out and sues the hell out of him. So they raid your house with a search warrant, and they find some pretty disturbing things. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's like one of the largest explosives found in the history of Phoenix. Yeah, that's what my daughter says was on the news. Why? What did you have there? What did I have there? I didn't have anything. They said that, uh, I saw the final list about four months ago. I got a chance. My attorney finally sent me a copy. I got it last week. No, I didn't have those things. Explosives? Bombs? Let me say, you know anything about being in the military? You ever been in the military? No. Think logically for yourself. If you're going to blow up a building, are you going to do it with a pipe bomb? Does that make sense to you? Well, tell me then, what did you have in your house? Firecrackers. A few things to make some noise. Uh, start a fire, so when I blew my head off, at least it would make some kind of noise. And maybe the national news would pick it up. A letter to you guys. A letter to ABC. A letter to local news about Alyssa. I wanted attention brought to Alyssa, because in my mind, I believe anything adverse happened to Alyssa, it was done by a union. Because of my fighting this union, all over the Palo Verde nuclear power plant, because of their domestic terrorism in my house, calling my children, threatening my children, and my children confirm some of those stories, which I remember. Getting me laid off? Criminy sakes, they got me fired three weeks before my wife died. The United States Government Department of Energy, after I received a high-performance review and a promotion. You ever heard of that? Would that make you feel like maybe they got a little more power than you realize? The unions? Yeah. They run at 98% union membership in the United States government. The next closest is the Postal Service, which is their largest and most active union. So what are you planning to do? Just bring attention to Alyssa. My health was so bad. I didn't want to live. I was in bed 14 to 16 hours a day, incapable of doing hardly anything. Couldn't even go to the doctor half the time without paying Sarah or one of her friends to drive me. How are you going to do this? Take a shotgun and blow my head off? That's what I tried to do in 94. And what about the firecrackers and the bombs and the explosives? What bombs? You mean a few little flash things that would uh, make some noise just to make noise? You can't kill anybody with a pipe bomb unless you stick it down their throats. Police say you were going to bomb the local union hall. Sure they did. Because they don't understand that you can't take that building down with a bomb. You can't burn it down. It's an inflammable building. You weren't going to do that? Not in the least bit. Why? I'm going to murder a bunch of innocent people? That sounds insane. Although I am insane, some people think. Obviously not enough to not stand trial. No, there's a lot of good people at the local 640. There's a lot of good people in the IBEW. I met a lot of great people out at the Palo Verde Nuclear Power Plant, many of which thought very lowly about the local union because of the animosity. But when the union has an international, and, and people don't realize this, if you were to ask what kind of structure the union is, could you tell me? Do you know what kind of? It's a corporation. If they want to take over one of the local unions, they do it through corporate papers called a trusteeship. So why would they need to bring guns and convicted felons? But, Mr. Turney, it looked like you were ready to go. You had a van that was packed, a checklist, 
Surveillance video of the Union. There's a checklist? Okay. Surveillance of the Union? Probably so. I took pictures of that. A number of times. Once the leads kept going back through a guy named Bob Whistler, who was trying to help me, because he saw, you know, in 96, Congressman Bob Stump wrote a letter for me because of the way I was terminated. Because I was terminated from the government in 95 again, with a broken leg. Because I was unable to work anymore. Again, that was after the union had a meeting with management without me being there. And they got me terminated. So he wanted me to testify before um, Bill Gooding's committee that they were, you know, about strong arm tactics being used in the federal government by unions. And one of the primary people that they were complaining about was the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, which this was their strategy, strong arm tactics. And that witness list, I was put on that witness list as I've shown everybody with that document. Bob Whistler told me, you know, he showed up at the local 640 with the witness list and my name was on it. And unions have a very strong attitude towards people who do that, go against what they're trying to do. And again, the name Palo Verde was very big, very big political situation. And when International made an argument around the local union, which violated their own constitution, stating that they wouldn't give sea wages, this was the conflict between the business manager and Glenn Ross. Now, you had your children in the house, even a grandson. How could you put them at risk, not to mention the entire neighborhood, with these explosives? These things weren't in there. They were not in that house. I wouldn't do that to my grandchildren. I wouldn't do that to my daughter. I have sons that come by all the time and borrow tools. You don't think they would have noticed that? I had two sons that actually met, and they were talking about dad's crazy and he's obsessed over Alyssa. Why does he keep doing this thing? Alyssa's been gone so long. Why won't dad drop it? They were talking about maybe getting me committed. And you talked to my son, James. He thought I was absolutely nuts because I wouldn't drop the issue of Alyssa. I wanted them to research it further. In fact, I didn't want a federal workers' comp case. I didn't want it at all. What I wanted was an investigation by the Department of Justice, which I tried to get them to start in 93. Did they tell you that I won a whistleblower case against the United States government? They didn't tell you that, did they? I won a lawsuit against them for federal workers' comp and am receiving total disability because of the stress related to what that union did to me on those federal government charges. Did they tell you that? You filed a lot of lawsuits? Yes, sir, I did. And the best way to do that, if you want to get something out, the best way to do that, what to find out the real truth is, is through discovery. Is you file a lawsuit, and then you get the real facts. Because under the authority of the court, you get discovery and the real documents instead of hearsay or political garbage. I sued the governor here. Did they tell you that too? Janet Napolitano. My sister died because the governor was caught taking campaign finance money from one of the doctors. You had a lot of writings. Tremendous amount of writings. Police call them almost a manifesto. Yeah, I was writing a book. They have a copy of it. Did you get a copy of it? In one of your own writings, you actually said, and I quote here, that you had to kill at least a dozen union members. You had to kill them. In one of your own writings. I killed a dozen union members? That you wanted. You had to kill a dozen union members. I don't remember. Were you going to take innocent lives? Nope. Then why write that? I don't know. I don't remember even writing that. I remember writing about two specific incidents. A guy named Charles Parsons and Gary Morissetti. Those two guys? Those two guys. What did you do? 
They're the ones that said Alyssa was dead. So what did you do? In 2003, what did I do? Phoenix PD already told you? They told me what you said you did. Okay, let me tell you what I did. Trying to meet with these people. Most of the time because the IBEW didn't want to meet with me. Period. Okay? Because they were afraid. In fact, I was warned if I got involved in what I was going to get involved in about the politics there, it it was all very dangerous. I didn't believe it, because I didn't think things like that went on in America. But after your wife gets called and various other things, you begin to catch on real quick. You get these sudden attacks. I don't know where, you know, close misses, close calls, you begin to understand it's a little more serious than what you thought. You realize how stupid you were, because family men shouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff. Anyway, I went to meet the one Charles Parsons guy, and as soon as he, we pulled up in the car, the guy stepped out of the car and opened up on me and started shooting. So I shot back. Self-defense? In self-defense. What happened? I decided that if I went to the police with this, I would be put in jail just like I am right now. So you killed him? Yeah, because he was trying to kill me. One person or two? What? One or two. One or two what? People that you killed. Just him. He was the only one on that one. Before he died, he told me that Alyssa was dead. She, her body had been dumped out. I think it was north of the I-10, out out by Desert Center. That's where I kept looking, doing my own grid search out there. What did you do with his body? Took it out there and left it with, like they did hers. You buried him? Yep. Why didn't you tell the police about this? Would you? Well, now you're here. You're in jail already. That's why I'm telling you now. You know the police say they checked it out already and that the persons, they said you killed two people. No, one. The persons you said you killed died of natural causes. Is that right? I don't know. That's what their ID said on them. I didn't know the people. I'd never seen them before. So maybe they were wearing, they were carrying false IDs? Anything's possible. I figure by now the Phoenix PD, as good as their investigations are, Let's see if they can't find Alyssa's body. They couldn't find either one of these guys. By golly, they just seem to have a tough time finding these things, don't they? Why would the Union want to kill your daughter? Why not go after you? Who said they didn't? You think it was just an accident whenever somebody slams an 18-foot ladder into you? And you almost get knocked off a 60-foot steel walkway? That's what happened to me in 1995 at Fort Peck. Accident? Other times jumped, my kids almost got, you know, getting broken into the house, my children being threatened. Because I wanted to push the issue. Because when this thing happened in 1978 and Glenn Ross shot Ray Duke, the vice president, I went down with Glenn Ross and a number of people to the FBI building and gave them a report. And I asked them to investigate the labor racketeering. It never happened. Now that's not going to make you too popular with the international who's coming out here with all their little, I mean... Who's going to hire a convicted felon for things like arson, kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon? Mr. Turney, you say the government is out to get you. The union's out to get you. The Phoenix Police Department is out to get you. It sounds like you think the world is out to get you. And it sounds a little delusional. Well, that's what they investigated. I just went and talked to the government's forensic psychologist. She said I had a paranoid personality, but didn't say delusional. Do you think you have a person, paranoid personality? You ever wore a badge and a gun? No. You ever been in the military? No. I guarantee you'll have paranoid personality after that and for the rest of your life. That just comes with experience. 
You said you were avenging Alyssa's death. That's why you killed this guy? I killed him because he was going to kill me. He shot at me first, and I had a military vest on. It still has the blemish, or whatever you call it, you know, where one of the slugs hit me. Of course, the Phoenix PD has that, and it will probably disappear as well. You know, if I was being falsely accused, I would do everything I could to try to clear my name. That's why I agreed to this interview. Like I mentioned earlier, this time when my father first went to prison was really dark for me. I fully believed in his innocence. I'm even on that episode of 2020 defending him. I not only believed in his innocence, but defended him with conviction. Because it's what I really believed. I never doubted that he built those bombs. But at this time, I didn't think he was really going to use them. Of course now, I know that that is not the case. During this time, I was still the family contact for Alyssa's case, and continued to help provide information to the detectives. I was helping connect them with new witnesses, keeping them up to date with my current phone number, and we were even still making jokes over email. I really tried my best to maintain a pleasant and open relationship with the detectives, despite my personal feelings. The investigation of what happened to Alyssa was far from over. While I was trying to help my father and figure out my new life, Detective Summershoe and Anderson didn't skip a beat in continuing to collect information related to the disappearance. And the surge in media attention from my father's arrest was drawing people in from all over. It made local and national news. And so all of a sudden on the news, you know, me and in the living room, I just got home from work and your text picture on the news. I'm like, what the hell, you know? Um, and that's how I found out, you know. Uh, I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, he killed her. I feel like somebody called me and told me, it might have been my mom, but like seeing that, I was like, oh my God, it's finally going to come to a head. This is all going to happen. Yeah. And finally... And then that was a massive letdown. Yeah. But it was like, see, I knew it. I knew he had something to do with it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And then nothing came of it. And then I remember when your dad got arrested, my dad called me and he was like, Sarah's old house is on the news. And then I turned on the news and I was like, that's Sarah's current house. Her dad is being arrested. And my dad was like, what? Yeah. No, because your parents didn't believe it either. I mean, Mm -hmm. they knew each other forever. So with this newfound public interest in the case, they interviewed at least another few dozen people who knew Alyssa. I have probably a thousand pages of interviews from around this time, so I'm just going to share the ones that I found to be the most interesting. Just four days after the raid, the police spoke with a neighbor that Alyssa used to babysit for when she was 13. Her and her family were very close to Alyssa, and they even took her to California on a family trip. But the mother of the family spoke to the police when she saw the media coverage and said that Alyssa would often come to her house to escape, that our father conducted surveillance on his neighbors, and that Alyssa reported that our father had videotaped her in the bathroom. And during this time, Detective Summershoe interviews a good family friend who was around me and Alyssa's age. 
she does not want to be named in this podcast for a variety of reasons. But in the report, Summershoe tells this friend that she doesn't need to be afraid because our father would not be getting out of prison for a long time. And although this friend doesn't wish to be a part of the podcast, I had a chance to speak with her about this. And when we were discussing her interview with police, she told me that Summershoe didn't tell her our father was going away for a long time. He told her that he was never getting out of prison. After this, another friend is interviewed who confirms Alyssa's friend Jessica's story from episode four. If you don't remember, Jessica says that her and a friend went to the guidance counselor at Paradise Valley High School to tell them that they believed that our father was responsible for Alyssa's disappearance and to also report the abuse. However, they were quickly dismissed and the guidance counselor took no action. The detectives dug so deep, they even contacted the aide at Congressman Shattuck's office who spent so much time fielding my father's complaints and stories. The report states, I asked him to describe Mike, to which he responded, I kind of liked him. He described Mike as paranoid and possibly suicidal. He felt as though speaking with Mike had actually given him an outlet and may have kept Mike from ending his life. He goes on to state that he really thought that our father cared for him too, and he even offered to pray over a health condition that he spoke to my father about. But two of the most shocking statements come from my brother's friend and my brother himself. The report in which the police interview my brother Rhett's friend states, quote, what he recalled was that Alyssa Turney had come out with or threatened to go public with an accusation against her father, Michael Turney, and then did something to her the next day. And in another interview with my brother Rhett, he is quoted as saying, all this bullshit, where is my sister? Where is my sister at? He is the one responsible. He's the one that picked her up last. He's the one that saw her. Where is she at? Where the fuck is she at? And then the ABC 2020 episode aired in August of 2009. And like I mentioned in episode nine, I didn't remember the police telling me that Alyssa had been sexually abused or taken out of school early that day. So when I saw them present this information on the show, I was stunned. It was as if I was hearing it for the first time. And I was upset that my brother James didn't defend our father. I was extremely unhappy with how the episode turned out. But that's because I didn't know the full story. I began reading the comments online, and of course, no one believed my father. Everyone told me what an idiot I was for defending him. How it was clearly him that had killed Alyssa. They didn't understand how I didn't see it over the years and years of abuse. I really thought that ABC 2020 wanted to help my family. And of course, they did. But at that time, I didn't see it that way. I was devastated. But there was really no time to be sad. I had my father's bomb trial to prepare for. And on top of that, he just fired his public defender and decided to represent himself. Which meant I had a lot of work to do. Next time on Voices for Justice. The court asks my father, what is your explanation for the things that were found in your home? And my father responds, I'm beginning to believe that the case is beginning to show that the Phoenix Police Department probably had my oldest son, Rhett, who was an injector of drugs, 
that he had access to the house. He had been in the house. As a child, he definitely used my own handwriting many, many times. Again, that's just speculation. But I do know that they weren't there before the Phoenix Police Department got there, but they were there afterwards. I need to extend a thank you to Justin Rimmel for once again lending his voice to the podcast for the ABC 2020 transcript. If you still haven't checked out his work, Justin does some awesome podcasts, including his newest production, Sweetiana, as well as Mysterious Circumstances, Public Enemy Number 1, Blood and Dust, and Mysterious Circumstances Jr. Justin is a great friend of the podcast, so please go check him out. Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time.